Welcome to The Crux. Each week, two of the world's top communicators take you behind the scenes of the news of the day to explore the crux of communications that are shaping business, politics, and our daily lives. Hi, this is Gary Sheffer. And hi, I'm Mike Fernandez, and we're glad to be with you from Boston University. Welcome to the crux of the story. Hi, I'm Mike Fernandez, and I'm here with my colleague, friend, and fellow sports fanatic, Gary Sheffer. Hi, Gary. Hey, Hey, Mike. How are you? Today, we are going to talk about the world of sports marketing, and and, and there really couldn't be a better time. As we tape this podcast, you got the Winter Olympics are in full gear in Beijing. The Super Bowl is coming up this Sunday in Los Angeles. The NHL and NFL have just played their their all-star events, and February 20th, we not only have the NBA All-Star Game, we have the Daytona 500, which kicks off the 2022 NASCAR Cup Series. And assuming the players and owners finally resolve their issues, <laughs> Major League Baseball will start playing better. training games the following They better. So this is like, this is like sports paradise. So to speak with us today, We've called on uh, a marketing professional who has worked in Major League Baseball and with NASCAR. He guided uh, large companies from Anheuser-Busch to Bank of America through sports sponsorships and events, including the Olympics and Super Bowl. Our guest today is president of Discover Sports and Entertainment, Michael Hargrave. A little truth in advertising, Mike and I worked together at what is now ConAgra Brands, where he was the vice president of strategic alliances. And and since then, it had gone on to become the senior vice president of global sponsorship marketing at Bank of America, and then the CMO, chief marketing officer at Richard Petty Motorsports. Mike, great to be with you, buddy. Welcome to the Crux. Good morning, Mike. Great to be here. Hi, Gary. Hey, Mike. Welcome to the Crux. So, where to begin? I mean, I mean, let's let's start with the Olympics. Mike, you've worked with a number of companies and clients that have been sponsors. And for the uninitiated, there are all kinds of sponsorships associated with the Olympics. Is kind of that top tier IOC sponsorship for the overall games in a category. There are country level and country sports level sponsorships. How does one actually look at the Olympics? evaluate it as a marketing property and assess whether or not to engage in a sponsorship? Well, the Olympics are a very complex environment for a sponsor to go into. And and you mentioned IOC, USOC. So you're buying those rights from the international group or from your host country or your, you know, the USOC for a specific reason, because that market's important to you. And so the rights that you're looking for from that governing body will reflect what you're trying to do as a brand or as a company. So in the case of IOC with the Cokes of the world, Intel, they're looking at a global market and they want to make sure that that the audience sees them as a global brand. And so it's important for them to have the highest level of, of the broadest level of rights that they can have. In the case of the USOC, 
you know, if you're a U.S. brand and that's your focus, that's, you know, that's where you're going to go. But you break it down even further from that when you get into the governing bodies of sport. So gymnastics and skating and, and all the different groups. And then you break down who's that appeal to what happens during the years when there's not an Olympic game mm. with that sport. And yeah. does it align with what you're trying to say as a brand? Many of those governing bodies not only have commercial assets, but they, they're contributing to the communities that they're in. You know, swimming, for instance, is helping kids in, you know, all across the United States learn how to swim. Mm-hmm. And uh, so it becomes a safety program for them and a very important program for many communities that don't necessarily have access to swimming pools a readily accessible swimming program. So so lots of interesting things to think about as well as potentially build, right? With yeah. some of the some of these assets. Now one of the things and in part this comes from a place where I worked for a company at one point that was a, a USOC sponsor, US Olympic Committee sponsor for the Salt Lake City Games, and they had uh, a controversy that emerged. And now, uh, not to put you on the spot politically, but to think about this element of controversy, but now there has been an element of controversy around these games in Beijing. We had a number of countries, a handful of European governments, the US, Canada, and Australia, decide they're going to have a diplomatic boycott placing a little bit of attention around what they see as human rights abuses in the Chinese treatment of Muslim Uyghurs. When something of a controversial nature comes to play in the Olympics, does that diminish the value of these sponsorships? And are there any recourses uh, for sponsors to take? Well, I mean, you're kind of talking about two different things, right? One is is the decision to be involved with the Olympics. And then the other is what what kind of contractual protections do you have? And, you know, without getting into that, because they're very complex, Mm -hmm. just say that any sponsor that gets involved with the Olympics and does not do their homework up front on what the issues are. So we knew we were going to Beijing in 2015. Right. So if there's issues with human rights, they didn't happen between 2015 and now. So as a global player, as a, you know, in a global market, you should know those things. Right. And be willing to take the risk. And that's the other thing. If you're a global company and you're in those companies, Olympics or not, you're taking a risk, right? You're going into another country with a different set of rules and a different history. And is that where you want to do business? Those are decisions you have to make. And I think that's why a lot of these companies go into the Olympics is that they've made that decision to be in those markets. And they're saying, hey, we're going to stand behind who we are and what we do. And this is where we do business. When you think about what the Olympics is, it's the most diverse group of people that come together within four years within a, that geographic space that ever happens. There's no other event, no other place in the world that you could be where you'd have a more diverse group of people. And I think to embrace that and to say, 
we have issues as a you know on a global scale but we still can come together and compete and learn something about each other through this process i think is at the yeah. heart of why companies get involved with you. yeah and you hear about the olympic spirit and these athletes you know train for for ages in order to get the opportunity that there's always a lot of thrill and excitement about watching these young people go for it all right yeah and 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 we've you know we either grew up doing some of that or we've had kids that have have done it or we've experienced it in some way it's what they wake up every morning thinking about it's their dreams it's their goals and passions and you know we saw one of the u.s skaters last night come through with a huge win and but his teammate had to get on a plane and head back to the united states because he was he tested positive for covid so you had you know the the agony of defeat, you know, and the thrill of victory, right, right, right there. The old wide world of sports adage. <laughs> yeah, Mike, uh, again, thank you for being on the crux. I've had a lot of experience with the Olympic Games. When I was at GE, we were the top contributor financially to the Olympic movement, both through our own sponsor, top sponsorship and through the U.S. broadcasting rights to the game. When we love the association for the reasons that you just mentioned, the association with this diverse multinational gathering of incredible people. And for those of you who are listening and have never been to a games, it is really a remarkable experience. I mean, uplifting, fun, amazing to watch these athletes. And of course, we, we use it at GE as a B2B experience for our customers. And that's been I assume, reduced recently because of the COVID restrictions, but really for all the reasons, and and we tried to focus on the athletes, but nonetheless, you know, the games have been subject to lots of politicization and going back to 2008 and even before uh, when the games were in Beijing the the last time. And and I'm going to make a statement and, and you don't necessarily have to respond to this, but I think the value of Olympic sponsorship for some of these big companies have been diminished because of that. I see the games viewership in the United States anyway, is down 43%. The opening ceremonies compared to 2018, I think was, and maybe they'll pick up as the competition picks up, but you've worked a lot on the games and, and with the IOC. So my question is about the IOC is, They're trying to change the games and be more responsive, I think, personally to some of these issues. What's your experience been in dealing with the IOC and and where do you think the Olympic movement stands overall right now? Well, I I don't have direct involvement. I have not had direct involvement with the IOC. I I have with USOC on several occasions Mm -hmm. and, and then, of course, many of the governing bodies. But from a fairly close, you know, space. I've been, you know, I've watched the IOC and what they're doing, and and I do believe that there's an effort to improve how they do business. Yeah, I think that the bid process is is very flawed, and yeah. it's just it's human nature to want to compete, and you know, throwing money at it's probably one of the fastest ways to get a leg up, and so it, it's just for me, I think. If I were in the IOC, that's the part of the process that I would really look at. Yeah, that's and, a great and, point. 
Yeah. But I, I, I think, uh, you know, hey, that's exactly ratings. You know, if ratings are down, if you can't have people in attendance, that's what you look at. You say, or if you just say, my involvement in this country is there's too much attention to it right now. And that's not where we want to be. Well, then you get out of the sponsorship. So, mm-hmm. you know, there are three, four year deals and, and maybe you don't have an out. You have to make the best of it for that period of time. But I do think that from a negotiation standpoint, as a buyer for many years, I would absolutely use that to if I wanted to stay yeah. in to reduce what I was paying those governing bodies. Yeah, Mike, I think your point about the IOC is right. I I think they're on a journey and they're making progress. Uh, It's so difficult. The bid process needs to be improved, but it's it's unfortunate that the games have become so political because it does take away, I I understand these are legitimate issues for discussion, Mm -hmm. but it does take away from the amazing, amazing competition that goes on. You think about what happens though I went to Australia for for the Sydney Olympics and the Aborigines issue was one that, you know, was very apparent and was talked about. And then all of a sudden, Kathy Freeman ran the 400 meters. Yeah, exactly. And and I tell you, man, it was the most amazing moment. And that whole stadium just erupted in support of her and who she, who she was about, but also who she was as an athlete. You know, you, you, raise, you raise a great point, Mike, in the sense that I think as one evaluates sports sponsorships and even relationships with athletes, if they have another chance to compete, if there's another something that is, you know, beyond the ken of just being fantastic, all of a sudden, you know, people turn their heads away from the controversy sometimes and just, you know, embrace that moment and yeah. move ahead. Exactly. Well, hey, let's let's turn from the Olympics to the most unlikely Super Bowl. I think anybody, you know, two teams that nobody thought would be in the game this year. Yeah, the Rams. Um, yeah, the Rams, you know, yeah. the Bengals and the Rams. Yeah, but so, the Bengals were a surprise. For yeah, sure. they're a surprise. So, look, everybody looks forward to the game, but uh, obviously to the ads as well. And, you know, I think probably the most prominent Super Bowl advertiser ever is Anheuser-Busch. I, people mm-hmm. remember the Clydesdales. And what was the other one with the frogs? Well, uh, we had the frogs. They were the frogs. The, they were the frogs. frogs. Yeah, I forget what they Budweiser. said. Budweiser. Budweiser. <laughs> there you go. See? <laughs> There you go. But, you know, at GE, we had, we did it. We tried a couple of times doing ads. One was a dancing scarecrow on power lines. Didn't work out so well, but we actually did one (laughs) with Budweiser. I don't know if you remember this, Mike, it was guys clinking buds in a bar and it was GE guys and Budweiser guys. And, and it was like, Hey, who are you? And, And the GE guy said, Hey, we're the guys who make the power that make the beer. You know, because uh, we provide the electricity cool. to the plant. <laughs> Great ad. I really love that ad. So, you know, the Super Bowl, like everything else, ups and downs. It's a incredibly expensive experience for a brand. You know, it's probably as close, you know, the second only to presidential campaigns on whether your ad is good or bad, you know, and then immediately afterwards. So mm-hmm. it's a bit of a risk. Would brands like Anheuser-Busch 
ever dare not to participate in something as, you know, a seminal event like the Super Bowl? Yeah, I'm, I'm going to disagree a little bit. It, okay. As as ex, expense is relative, right? Okay. It's, it's what do you get for what do you pay? Yeah. And, and and I think that there's a there's an argument to be had that the Super Bowl is one of the most efficient buys that you could have in sports or television. Yeah, it's five million bucks per 30 second unit or six million this yeah. year, whatever it is. But you have 115 million, the largest television audience ever last year for the Super Bowl. So you're coming off of that, you know, the networks, you know, paid a, a pretty good price for the broadcast rights. So that, you know, they're they're trying to make up some ground there. But from an advertiser standpoint, it's so much more than that 30 second unit too, right? So when we came out with Bud Bowl in, in uh, 1989 <laughs> wow, or 1988, and we had the year before, Miller was the official beer of the NFL. And the year before, they had dominated the broadcast. And we all walked into our offices on Monday morning with our tail between our legs. And sure enough, the higher ups were all in a conference room. And, and August <laughs> Bush said, we will never lose like that again. And out of that was the idea of the Bud Bowl, you know, whether we had the rights from the NFL or not, we were going to create a game within the game. And I would say that that was a defining moment for the Super Bowl in that watching the commercials became as, as not as important as the game, but became kind of like, well, the game within the game, right? Yeah, yeah, definitely. uh, So that has progressed on and, and a lot of companies like PepsiCo and others that are involved in the, the Super Bowl to a great extent have also kind of embraced that this is a great place to launch new campaigns, new brands, to really set the tone for what you're going to do for that coming year. Yeah, so, I see uh, already I've, I've watched some of the ads ahead of the game. I think Uber Eats or Uber is launching something new. Yeah. Scarlett Johansson and her husband, I'm going to forget his name, from Saturday Night Live in an ad. That's actually very funny, but it sounds like they're launching something new off of that platform of, of the Super Bowl. One quick question, too, that, you know, Mike and I, you mentioned we're Yankee fans. I know you did some work for the Houston Astros. I won't throw a chair at you virtually through <laughs> through Just look the, at the records over the last 10 years yeah, i know okay. yeah so I, I always wondered though like how do brands decide mike that and is it worthwhile the astros it was it was a minute made park and yes. that kind of thing you know those kinds of long-term sponsorship and naming deals uh, do those pay off Naming rights are a little bit riskier because they're very long term. And so what happens in the first five years is great normally. And what happens in the final five years of a 20 year deal. And why is that? Why is that? You know, it's it's just the you've established yourself in the marketplace and the name of it becomes kind of part of it it just becomes the name and it it loses its association Uh. with the brand. We sponsored the Bush series in NASCAR for many years. And in the last time we negotiated our deal, we made them put Bush beer in the title of the series so that they would associate it with Uh, beer and not uh. like Bush leagues. (laughs) (laughs) That's a great, great story. 
So I think that the sponsors on, on, from a, a team standpoint, a team is particularly in professional sports in the United States is associated with a specific market. So it all comes back to that market. Is that market important for you? Yeah. I'm sure that Minute Maid Park had a, a large Coca-Cola distributor in that market oh, that I was see. driving that and said, this is going to be the foundation for everything that we do in the market for all of our brands. I but you. we're going to call it Minute Maid. And maybe that was there was some influence on, you know, whether you use a soft drink as a title on that or something a little bit more healthful, like a juice. A juice, yeah. Interesting. Interesting. So, so, so Mike, the, the world of sports marketing is it, really changed a lot in the fifth. I mean, it was 15 years ago, you and I were at Conagra and you look at all the new kind of ideas and properties that are out there. You know, today we've got virtual reality headsets. So one can be in front of, you know, kind of sitting in the front row of an NBA game live. We have uh, branding availabilities in online games. We have many more marketing opportunities in and around an event or a property or a team. What's your best guess about what the world of sports marketing might look like 15 years from now. And what should companies be thinking about that if they want to be more cutting edge in, in the field of sports marketing? I think the 15 years is really long, you know, to make any kind <laughs> Sorry of about that. <laughs> mm-hmm. but, but, you know, five, 10 years from now, I teach a class called the business of NASCAR at the University of South Carolina, and we start the semester with kind of a history lesson. This is where the sport came from. Here's how it grew up. Here's how sponsors got involved. Here's where they make their money kind of thing. Mm -hmm. So we try to get that out of the way really quick. And then we move on to the fun part, which is, okay, the big project at the end of the semester is going to be, you tell me what the big idea is for NASCAR going forward. (laughs) <laughs> and so a lot of it tends to focus on technology. So like, you know, augmented reality and, and those kinds of opportunities that are available, I think, you know, and motorsports definitely relate, you know, if, if you could be inside of a car, I- inside of one of the driver's car and actually see some of what's happening during a race, it's, it's just going to take your, your experience to a whole nother level. I do think that gambling is going to be a big part of sports, whether we like that or not. I don't know, but it's, it is the reality in the United States is that each state is now rolling out uh, gambling laws. And then gaming is, we have a cool property, a professional karate league that we launched about four years ago called karate combat. And when the pandemic hit, we could no longer have live events. So we went to Budapest and filmed our fights, shot our fights in a huge studio with a green screen background, got Unreal Engine, who does all the gaming backgrounds. And stuff. Yeah. We had Neo Tokyo and LA in the 1980s and all this crazy stuff. And it just added a whole nother element of entertainment to what was a karate fight, you know, live and exciting, competitive, athletic, you know, event and added just another element to it. It allowed the announcers to go off in other directions. And so I think thinking about, you know, are, are we gonna be living with shutdowns in the future? 
I, I hate to think that, but if we do, you know, what we learn through this time is going to be important to how sports is delivered, how the programming is delivered in the future. Yeah. You know, it's, it's, you, you mentioned these things and, you know, the world of sports is changing and things like martial arts fighting and, and that kind of thing is immensely popular, you know, so, so there's an ebb and flow on popularity in sport, but the, the bottom line seems to be Mike, that live events, no matter whether they're on a broadcast network or on a streaming platform or however they're consumed, they're, they remain immensely popular these events, these sporting events. And, and so I, 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 I'm not a big fan of the gambling association with, with sport. I remember the time when, was it Mickey Mantle and Willie Mays were suspended from baseball for a year just for being in a casino or something. Paul Horning. Yeah. Paul Horning. Yeah, exactly. So, so anyway, I don't know what my point is, but I, 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 uh, we, we see these trends in sports, but the bottom line is that they remain immensely popular with viewers and therefore you would think with brands and advertisers that want to be part of it one that's still you you mentioned nascar and i wanted to ask you about that uh you worked with the king richard petty you know the most famous uh nascar driver and winningest i think mike is that right is he still uh, he's still oh yeah they're they're way it's never gonna be broken yeah so nascar was ahead of the game now i love this project that you give to your students about what's the future of nascar but nascar you know branding on the cars branding on the suits the, the drivers wear and you know motorsports seems to have a continuing popularity i'm going to ask you a political question you don't have to answer it if you don't want mike but it's a sport nascar particularly that has been associated with a certain political demographic does that influence a company's interest in being a sponsor? Yes, I think that it goes into part of your decision process. I don't think that most sponsors that have gotten involved with NASCAR have decided not to get in because mm. of the lack of diversity. They've gotten in because it was a large audience in certain geographies and there was a great opportunity for them to yeah. market to that audience. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but those conversations absolutely happen. Yeah. I'm working for Texaco in 19 or in 2002, 2003. Deval Patrick, who is the governor of, of Massachusetts, was, was our general counsel at the time. And for some odd reason, sponsorships reported into him for a period of time. <laughs> but it was to my benefit because Deval was a, a wonderful guy. And, yeah. Uh, supporter of what we did but he challenged us on why we're even in nascar why are we in this sport yeah and and i guess my my point to him was well first of all it's cars and we're more oil so (laughs) seems logical okay so that makes sense right (laughs) and we've been here a long time and texaco brand was known to be the performance brand at the time and had a lot to do with our involvement in motorsports so you don't want to lose that but I knew the point that he was getting at, and the point was how we address the African-American community through this. And my point to him was, well, if we want to try to change something, we can't do it from the outside, outside, but we can certainly have some influence on the inside. And we started internship programs with the race teams we were involved with, the first African-American mechanic 
the first African-American designer were all part of that program that came into, uh, into NASCAR. And, you know, you could absolutely argue it took way too much longer than it needed mm. to, but I can't <laughs> tell you how happy I am that Daryl Bubba Wallace is winning is at the highest level of the sport. I think it's it's just opened up doors. It's it's great to see Michael Jordan involved. So I think we've got, but you you have to you have to look at at everybody that's been involved with that. And and Joe Gibbs was yeah you know one of the first people that influenced that, bringing in Reggie White. So progress is being made, but it's being made from inside the sport. Inside, terrific, terrific. We uh, and I hate to keep bringing up GE, but we had. This, how advanced NASCAR was in selling sponsorships. We had the tail end of somebody's car. At one point, GE Plastics was the sponsor. <laughs> and we got the bumper, you know, the rear bumper. It's like, okay, I'll, I'll try it. I figured, you know, he was a good driver. I, I forget his name now. It was about 10, 15 years ago. But, well, uh, well, you know, and, and to that kind of insight, I can remember ages ago, just as NASCAR was kind of really beginning to, to take off. And I was still working for Eastman Kodak Company. And we got into a huge debate inside the company as to whether or not we should be in NASCAR at all. And, and part of it was the perception, you know, that people are watching these races in part and to see an accident. And, you know, and, and here you had Kodak as a brand was all about, you know, taking pictures of puppy dogs and graduations and weddings and whatnot. And how does that sync up? But then going back to your type of guidance, Mike, we did the research and found out that actually more photographs were taken at NASCAR events <laughs> than almost any other sport. Yeah. Yeah, my, my guess is, Gary, that G Plastics had some kind of an association with one of the car manufacturers that was saying, I need you to be on the car. Exactly. You know. <laughs> it's, right. But, you know, you're Mike, you're, you're right. It's a great guess. I, you know, we sold pellets, plastic pellets into the auto industry. Right. And so yeah. there you go. I, I'll remember his name before the end of this, but he, he went on to be one of the NASCAR champions. Later on, we were happy to be associated with it. Hey, one one quick thing, you know, we've been talking about leagues and teams and all of that. The practice of sponsoring, if you will, individual athletes, Mike, is a tough one, right? Or having them be spokespeople for your brand. You just have to think back to the folks like, you know, Tiger Woods and some of the things that happened with his career and now he's thankfully seems to be re recovering physically from his car accident. But I'm a tennis fan. You take a look at Novak Djokovic and his problems in Australia and maybe some lack of truthfulness about his COVID status and then refusing to be vaccine, which was required to play in the tournament. And as such, he was essentially deported. He's He's got sponsorships with Lacoste, Asics, Head, Peugeot. What's your advice to brands and companies that like that are thinking about some kind of relationship with an individual athlete. I'm a big proponent of meeting the person. <laughs> <laughs> I, I just think that too many sponsors do get in and fall in love with the star status and, yeah, and, yeah. and have that. But my guess is too, that, you know, before all of this, they sold a lot of product based on his endorsement. Yeah. Yeah. So, 
you definitely need to be careful in your contracts with with athletes that if they kind of go off the ranch on you that you you have an out and you're going to take a hit in the public you know but at the same time the the upside usually outweighs the the, the downside of that so just yeah. do your homework yeah. absolutely yeah kind of a, a flip side of that is you know, our, our new opportunities sometimes created, you know, sometimes it, it comes with a lot of noise. You know, I remember Nike taking a bet on Colin Kaepernick after he had been let go by the NFL and now kind of seeing the latest news with Brian Flores having been let go as the coach of the Miami Dolphins after two consecutive years of winning seasons. With a team that was not really yeah 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 yeah. he got a lot out of that team and 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 so now he's filed his suit is their marketing value sort of looking down down the road here for flores as a result of of what seems to to many to be a valid complaint in terms of his case i don't know i think that's it's tough to market off of uh controversy you're always walking a real fine line. And, and I think, I think the cool thing about Brian Flores is you look back and could he be the next Kurt flood? Yeah. I mean, every athlete that's playing the game professional, whether it's football, basketball, or baseball has Kurt flood should have his picture up on their wall because he gave them free agency. He gave up his career for free agency. Brian Flores, hopefully professional football coaches and maybe coaches in in all the major leagues may put Brian Flores picture up on their wall in the future because he has finally put a a stake in the sand when it comes to hiring practices for professional coaches. You know, we'll see, you know, where it's going to go, but I think his career is, it's going to be a challenge. Yeah. Yeah that's the risk that you take when you do what he's doing. But at the same time, it's probably. Yeah. It's important, right? I mean, yeah. yeah, Yeah. I mean, I mean, to think that this is another Kurt flood moment, we've asked your opinion about sports marketing across iconic platforms, talked a lot about issues, but I'd love to learn a little bit more about discover sports and entertainment, your firm, Tell us a bit about your work. You alluded a little bit to karate combat, which I'd also love to hear <laughs> more about. I mean, because that's a relatively new property. I think it started back in like 2018. And yeah. now it's got millions of followers on social media. It's had some broadcast coverage. So, so talk to us about what's up with uh, Discover Sports and Entertainment. Well, Discover Sports and Entertainment is a consulting company and business development company at the same time. So we we work with brands to help guide them on some of the decisions that we talked about today that brands have, are faced with when they get involved with sports. We have a, a nice group of people who have experience with United Airlines and Discover Credit Card and, and Six Flags. And then, you know, my background with different corporations in the sports too. So we bring all that to bear. On the other side, we do business development. So selling sponsorships on behalf of a lot of different properties. And 
one of the things when I work with uh, with the Petties, and and I I love working for Richard Petty. Just, <laughs> just he's golden man. He really is. <laughs> but you know, at the end, we work so hard to get into a company like GE, mm-hmm. and we get in and our demos don't line up, or our markets don't line up, or something, and and you're done. And from a salesperson's perspective, that's the last thing yeah. you you want to you work so hard for that opportunity. So we really diversify what we have to offer. We work with Spartan races. We work with Color Run. Yeah. We have a Ocean Conservancy that we're working with right now that's going to launch in May. That's a pretty cool event uh, called our, our Hidden World. And then out of the blue, I'm in karate. <laughs> I never, you know, I never participated in karate. So, but I, I love the people that we work with. They're passionate about the sport. They look at the sport from a from a traditional perspective. They really try to keep it away from the UFC type of thing, where it's a lot of, uh, you know, just really uh, street brawl. This is more the art of karate, and mm-hmm. so they really pay homage to that. And we talk a lot about the training that the athletes go through. We cover that kind of in a Olympic-esque kind of way. Here's the story behind the athlete. So we do a lot of that with our show. And and then we have fun. Yeah. There's no – the announcers – Bass Rudin is is a, an ex-UFC champion, heavyweight champion. Hilarious guy. A lot of fun. <laughs> he has fun with the athletes. He has fun with the other announcers. And the, he's always dressing up when he comes on the air and stuff. So, <laughs> um, I, I, you know, if you have a chance, we're on CBS Sports. And we'll oh, start again in April. And, and we're on ESPN Deportes. And, and we're on the, the Eurosport platform, the full platform that they have. So we have great distribution for the sport. And we're, we're going to go back to live events this year. Uh, we're not ready to announce where we're going to go yet, but we will be going back to live events. I, I think it's important. There's something, and I, I think we've all been to a live event that just, it takes it to another level. Yeah. You know? yeah. I've never been to a hockey game, you know, it's like hockey match where you had no idea how fast they could skate, yeah. or how fast that puck uh, is flying. But when you go to the live event, it takes it to a whole new level. And that's so, for sure. That's for sure. So, Mike, we have a lot of students that listen to the podcast. They might be listening and say, because it actually sounds cool to me. I'd love to do the kind of work that you do. It's it's uh, I love sports. What what do those students what kind of skills will they need to do the kind in the future? The kind of work you do. Yeah, I went to Ohio University, so I went to a graduate program in sports. So I kind of had to think through what was my career going to be and what did Mm -hmm. I have to offer just being knowledgeable about sports you're really not bringing value it's a business Mm -hmm. so knowledge about media knowledge about accounting knowledge about finance it's it's all the same things that you need when you go into any business exactly Um, and having those skills is important one thing that I would add I think that background in technology and engineering is not something that we used to traditionally look at in sports marketing, but I think that it's definitely elevated. I've had students in my class that were in engineering and they have great opportunities ahead of them because of that. Interesting. Well, listen, hey, by the way, I mentioned I would remember, and of course, Google helped me, but it was Matt Kenseth. (laughs) 
Oh, yeah. Matt Kenseth. Kenseth. And I should have remembered this overall, too. Roger Penske was on the GE board, a great ah. auto sports executive and, and uh, great guy. Owner of the and, Indianapolis 500. And, uh, exactly. So yeah. I should have remembered that. Roger will, you know, will, will kill me for not, but there was auto racing in our blood and because of Roger. Yeah. Mike, it's sort of a final question. I could imagine, you know, all of us who are sports fanatics get glued in at least once a day to the top 10, you know, from the games the, the day before or the night before. I'm just curious if, if if you had a top two or three in terms of sports moments that you were able to witness as a result of your incredible career, what might some of those top moments be? Well, the first one happened when I was a senior at Butler University, and the head of the radio and TV department called me one morning, and I <laughs> cleared my throat. Yes, Mr. Philby. And uh, he said, Hargrave, I got a phone number for you. You got to call this guy. He's with NBC. I was like, okay. Everybody else was on spring break. I was the last one available. I think. <laughs> so, so I call, I call, you know, the head of production at NBC that's there for the final four, 1980 final four. So I got to be a runner for NBC for the full week. And they had Al McGuire and Billy Packard and Dick Enberg and I drove them to the final game and uh, Dick or Al McGuire wow. was unusual. He had issues with being in crowds. So we had pulled around underneath market square arena and everybody saw him and they all ran over there the night before. And so he taps me on the shoulder and we've got everybody in the car. And he says, Mike, don't go all the way around. Just go down this way. I said, Al, I'll be going down the wrong way on the road. <laughs> and he said, he said, don't worry about it. I got you covered. So, okay. So I pull in. Dick Enberg's hit me on the back of the head, literally going, what are you doing? We're going the wrong way and all this stuff. And, and Al's yelling back to him, don't worry about it. We got it covered. And so they all pile out of the car and there's cops behind me and everything else by the time we got him out of the car. But the, the experience wow. of, of that really changed my focus coming out of school. And I thought, wow, I could do this for a living. Yeah. That's great. That's great. Well, I have to tell you, you provided me with one of my most special moments with a sports figure in that I can't remember the year off the top of my head, but when we were working together at ConAgra, the NCAA finals were in St. Louis yeah. and you had structured a customer event with Bob Gibson. Yep. And the couple of hours that I had the opportunity to spend with uh, Bob Gibson were really pretty, pretty special. Yeah. You, you talk about, a, you know, a competitor when it comes to sports, there was perhaps no one as incredibly competitive as Bob Gibson in his prime. Mike, do you remember Bob's comment about steroids? I do. I do. Because yeah, it, it, it related to the fact that at the time, you know, people were talking about Sammy Sosa. They were talking about Mark McGuire. And he made the comment. He said, you know, there are cheaters who are already 
in the Baseball Hall of Fame. <laughs> and, and, and then he, he made a very specific reference to Gaylord Perry, who had been well known for throwing the spitball. <laughs> yeah. Which yeah. was that, and, he, and he said, he said, I was so competitive if I had looked around and seen everybody else doing steroids and I was falling behind. He said, I would have done it. He said, thank goodness wow. they weren't around. But he said, I probably would have done it. Yeah. My all-time favorite baseball player, Bob Gibson. Yeah. Uh, I love the guy. Well, Great. thank you, Mike, for uh, joining you, Mike. us on the Crux. You know, we look forward to hearing more from you, your clients, and Discover thank Sports you. and Entertainment. Thank you. Thank you. Pleasure to see you, Gary. Take care. Thanks for listening to the Crux, and make sure to listen for our next episode. Follow us at the Crux on Facebook and on Twitter, and you can find our episodes on SoundCloud and on our website, thecruxpodcast.org.